Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. I actually enjoy these settings. That's why I'm coming closer. don't, Don't worry about it, Hendrik Willem. We can pick on people, but unfortunately, Jabu isn't in the service, so I can't pick on anyone right now. Uh, family, we are part of the series called Red Door Roots, where we're going to the roots of Red Door, preaching through some of the core distinctives, the things that we want to be known for as a church. It's been pretty exciting, and this morning we're preaching on city loving, and so we'll get to that in a moment. Maybe it sounds pretty interesting. You've been wondering what that means. Um, just maybe a preview for next week as well. Next week, we're starting with a new series. We're going to preach through the letter to the Philippians. It's going to be really good. It's all about living with contentment, living lives worthy of the gospel. It's just such a rich letter. And so don't miss it. Use the opportunity to invite other people to enjoy it as well. There's been lots of prayer, but let me pray quickly for our hearts as well. Father, we pray this morning for our hearts, that our hearts would be softened, that as the word of God rains down on us, that it won't run away, that it would penetrate for deep change to cultivate a heart that loves you. Amen. Family, let's start with a question this morning. What do you think is the difference between us and animals? What are the main differences between us and animals? Take a moment. I actually want some answers. This is not going to be a one-way thing. I want to I know what you think. If you were to say one thing And don't get too spiritual religious on me right now. But one thing that you think separates us from animals, what would that be? You can share it with one another. You can think. But I want some answers, and I'm going to pick on people. So, Whilst I'm looking at you two, I just want to say, was that your debut together singing together, Megan and Amy? Yeah, guys, that was lit this morning. Well done. Hendrik Willem, you were saying. This is actually a question that I want an answer from. (laughs) <laughs> we have a soul. Okay, great. We've got a soul. What was that? That's a big English word for me uh, this early on a Sunday morning. Someone please translate that in Praetorian. <laughs> Self-awareness. Okay, okay. The whole mirror effect. I go in a mirror and I see what I... Well, there's some monkeys that can look into a mirror and recognize themselves, but okay. What else? Thumbs, you medicine people. (laughs) Wait, that's so biologically. Uh, Some some evolutionists would challenge you on that, saying that there's a step in that. Okay, who else? Yes, definitely, definitely. Yeah, 100%. Anyone else want to share a thought? Reasoning, you can also, another medical student, you guys are so academically inclined. No, 100%. So most scientists would say, yes, it's the rational thought, self-actualization, self-awareness, reasoning, imagination that would separate us from animals. And yet, probably the biggest challenge to evolution at this stage that people face or evolutionists face is the fact that we can show mercy and compassion to one another. It is the emotional side of it. Here's why. Interestingly enough, in evolution, one of the main drivers of evolution, and I'm not talking about specific evolution adaptation, I'm talking about general evolution, 
The major challenge to general evolution is, the rule is, survival of the fittest. Okay? That's the rule of nature. And so even though animals, to some degree, some elephants mourn when some die and some animals care for one another, when it comes to your survival, it's survival of the fittest. And this is fundamentally different from humans. That's why we say, be more human, or humanity, or humanitarian. It's the fact that we actually don't live for survival of the fittest, but that we care for one another, that we care for the weakest in our society. This is a fundamental challenge to survival of the fittest because in essence, if it was only survival of the fittest, we would have wanted to separate ourselves from the rest of the weaklings in society. And constantly, even though we've got some selfish desires within us, we constantly see organizations and nonprofits rise up to care for the oppressed and the marginalized in our society. We see this in different religious religions, and this is especially true of Christians. This is especially true of the church of Christ. And this is one of the main things that I want us to see is also true and should be true of Red Door Church. And so here at Red Door, we want to be known for three things. We want to be mission-minded. We want to be community-cultivating, but we also definitely want to be city-loving. If you haven't been here the past two weeks, you can catch the sermons on the podcast channel. But this morning we're chatting about city loving, and this doesn't mean that we love the actual city and the buildings and the architecture. It's great, but it's no Durban or Cape Town. So that's not what we're meaning. It's not the infrastructure that gets us excited about Pretoria. Rather, we recognize that we're a church that has been placed in the city of Pretoria. And we don't want to be a church that's isolated from the rest of the city. In fact, we want to be a church that's engaging its city. You see, back in the day, people thought that the city actually taints Christians, and so they um, withdrew from the city into monasteries. They built high walls so that the city wouldn't taint them. But this is a misunderstanding of what the gospel is. And so at Red Door Church, we recognize that God has sovereignly ordained that we're in the city, and so we've got to ask the question, how do we then love and engage and serve the city where God has placed us? And this is the question that we want to wrestle with this morning. This is also the thing that I want to show us. It's not just a desire from us, but it's actually God's own heart. It is something that Scripture is very prevalent about. People that engage with the context around them. People that aren't oblivious to the hard conversations happening socially. A church that isn't just concerned with the snacks and coffee on a Sunday morning but actually what happens in the rest of the city during the week. And so for that, we're going to go to this piece in the book of James. I don't know if you've read the letter that James has wrote before. It's a very direct letter. It's one of those, you, it's actually fun reading because you're not wondering what James is talking about. He's very direct and open about what he wants you to know. And this piece this morning is exactly the same. And so almost the highlight of this morning's passage is found in verse 22. James says, but be doers of the word, and not only hearers, and thereby deceiving yourselves. And so James is writing to a group of Christians. And in this verse, he makes it clear that you're able to live your Christian life in such a way that you can also deceive yourself. Which should lead us to ask the question, what is the deception? What is the thing that we might miss? What is the thing that we might be deceiving ourselves about? 
Well, in verse 21, the verse right before this, he talks about receiving the implanted word of God, receiving the righteousness of God that will lead to salvation. And so, James states that those who have received the word of God, implanted word of God, meaning those who haven't just heard it but actually accepted this word of God, that allowed it to sprout roots in your heart, they have received salvation for their souls. And this is straightforward. Most of us might have heard this before. That you hear the word of God, you know that you've got to believe in the word of God, and once you believe, you receive salvation from the word of God through Jesus Christ. But the unsettling part lies in the deception. James makes the claim that there's a way in which you can live your life where you might think that you've received the word, where you might think that you've received the righteousness of God, where you might think that you have attained salvation through Jesus Christ, but in fact you have not. Now this should make us sit up straight and listen pretty carefully. I don't know about you, but if there's the slightest possibility or the slightest chance that I think that I might not be saved, that I'm in fact living a lie thinking that I'm saved, that I'm deceiving myself, I would want to know about this. I would want to make 100% sure that my faith, that the assurance of my faith lies in the right place and that I'm somehow not placing it in some self-guided, self-righteous notion that I might have dreamt up. So what is it? What is the thing that we might do to allow ourselves to be deceived, thinking that we are Christians when in fact we're not? Well, it's the same verse again. It's verse 22 that says, those who hear the word, but they don't do the word. The hearers of the word, not the doers of the word. And so he goes further, James, in verses 23 to 25, and he explains what he means by that. He says, verse 23, follow with me. For the reason. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in all his doing. And so James uses this illustration of a man who looks intently into a mirror, but the moment he walks away from it, he forgets what he looks like. This is someone who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ. They hear about the salvation that is available in Jesus. They hear about what it means to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus. They see the expectations that come along with this identity change, who you are in Christ, what it would mean for your life, what it means to serve Christ, to have him as your king and to have him rule your life. You read this or you hear this word and you might even gladly accept this word, believing that this is in fact true about the newness of life. You might even get excited that as you accept this, that you are now saved and you're a new Christian. You might even share it with the people next to you that you believe that you are a Christian and that you have salvation through Jesus Christ. And then, nothing changes. Their life stays exactly the same. There is absolutely no change in behavior, no change in the way that you spend your time or your money, no change in what you would and wouldn't do and what you would and wouldn't give your life to. 
The only thing that might have changed is that in the next census coming up, you can now tick the box that you identify as a Christian. And James is very blunt about this. This type of person that merely identifies with Christianity, but there's no outward flowing, no change in their life, they're deceiving themselves. The faith that they possess is no salvific faith. It's not, an, it's not able to save them. They actually do not possess salvation because they only heard the word and it had no influence in the way that they lived. If your deeds do not reflect your faith, then it is not a faith that is able to save you. Super scary thought. Hopefully some of you are sitting here, staunch followers of St. Paul who wrote the rest of the New Testament, and maybe some people listening on the podcast wanting to shout at me, Anna, James, right now, no, it's by faith alone that we are saved and not by my works, by grace alone. And you're right. That's 100% correct. And so what does it seem like James is contradicting Paul in this issue? Why does it seem like our works are the thing that save us? Well, both of them, both James and Paul, are actually talking about the same thing. Imagine viewing a plant. They're both talking about the same plant, but they're talking about different parts of the plant and viewing it from different angles. It's called the root fruit principle. The fruit shows what type of plant it is, what the root is, where it comes from. The fruit isn't the thing that actually defines the plant or that causes the plant. It is an outflowing of the nature of what the plant is. The root of Christianity is being saved by grace alone, without merit, without works. But if this is really true, if it's someone that really tasted and experienced this salvation, this grace alone salvation, it would have an outward working. There would be some fruit in your life. Not saying that we would be perfect, that we wouldn't sin in an instant, change, and now we're all mini Pauls, not sinning at all and doing everything perfectly. No, but there would be some change in our life. And maybe gradually over time, in the micro, in a week, it wouldn't feel like there's any change. But over time, if we stand back, we would see that God is slowly changing us, slowly changing us more into his own image. There would be some sanctification, some manifestation of what we believe and what we have received inwardly. And this manifests in a different way. Even in this passage, we saw that it's got an outworking in the way that we act and the things that we value and the things that we do, how we talk how we challenge our sin, how we challenge our own hearts, what we believe. And then ultimately what it would do, it would get us closer to the heart of God. Read with me verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Now we wanna sit up. We're like, okay, I wanna be part of that. I want religion that's not fake religion. I want religion that is not based on something that is baseless. I want an outworking that would really honor and serve and love God. Well, it's this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Well, visiting orphans and widows in that context where James was writing, and that society meant visiting the marginalized and oppressed. Back in the day, there was a male-dominated society, and so if you removed the male figure out of the family, 
it meant that those without a male figure were simply pushed to the edge of society. Their means of income and honor were taken away from them. And so we need to ask ourselves, if we want to have pure and undefiled religion, who are those that are now oppressed and marginalized and pushed to the edges in our society? Well, there's definitely some similarities. We're still living in one another's sense in a male-dominated society. They still inherited structural racism in South Africa. Our cities are plagued by people that only, are benefit, that only a few are benefited. But probably one of the biggest differences between our society and the one from back in the day that our society is more economic driven than it was back then. Meaning that the divide between people is financial. Finances dictate where you live, how close to the city you can live, what type of education you can get, and the quality of the health care that you can receive. And so we've got to ask ourselves, how can we then help the people that are in dire need? Verse 27 says, visit orphans and widows in their affliction. This literally means go and visit, go and see them. What I love about this sentence is it doesn't just show us who we should be loving, but also how we should be loving them. You would think that an economic problem requires a financial solution. And while I'm sure that's part of the answer, what James is saying is something quite different. Instead of keeping distance between us and those whom we want to serve, just paying the money into a bank account, making sure that people are looked after, James says we are to visit them, to step into their circumstance and to come alongside people, to not only want to help them, but also wanting to listen to their stories, wanting to understand, wanting to be with them, grow in a relationship. Ultimately, this is what we call having compassion. Compassion is so much more than just feeling sorry for people or wanting their circumstances to be better. Ultimately, fundamentally, compassion means suffering with people, just being with them, carrying the load. And there's extreme examples of this, but maybe a, a simple example is if you were to need to comfort a friend that has some devastating news or something devastating happening in their life, the way that we would want to do this in our compassion, where sympathy would simply be feeling sorry for them and offering advice to them, but compassion would be going to your friend, visiting them, and just being with them in that moment. It's so difficult, and sometimes we're so solutionist that we want to give an answer or give them a verse or something that they should believe just to feel better in the moment. And all these, those things have a place and are good and right, but compassion means that you're just there and you're listening to them. You're sharing the load. You're feeling the pain. Maybe it means just crying with them. Maybe it means just allowing that person to talk. I don't know, it's, it's hard. And often after those circumstances, it doesn't really feel like we did everything. We did anything. But it's exactly that. We're sharing the load. We being present in their circumstance. Compassion is often not having the answers and maybe not even knowing what to say, but being present with people. 
This is what the Bible is talking about when it says that we need to show compassion. We need to visit people where they're at. And this is not easy. It means, especially in a society where inequality is rampant, that we would have to move away from our comfort zones and come alongside people where they are and where they're suffering. And what we need is motivation. (laughs) Motivation to get us going. And so our motivation comes from the compassion we receive from God the Father. Psalm 103 says the following. He says, the psalmist says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God the Father is a God of compassion. He is one that not just blesses us from afar, but he actually cares deeply about our situations. He cares deeply about our experience within our own brokenness. And we know this is to be true because we've already seen how God has shown compassion. God did not merely sit in heaven far away from mankind, blessing us and hoping that it goes better with us. No, he sent his son. Jesus descended. He was incarnated. He took on flesh, took on the form of a servant, getting into the dirt. Jesus visited us in our affliction walking with us and we could see the true heart of the Father. And it's interesting, watching Jesus' ministry and what characterized Jesus in his ministry, we read in Matthew 9 the following. It says that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So he was practical. He did those things. But when he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is the savior of the world, but God is so much more than simply a God that gives us salvation. The heart of God is the one that is not oblivious to who we are and what we're experiencing. The author of Hebrews calls Jesus the sympathetic high priest the one who has experienced what you're experiencing right now, the one who has tasted the brokenness of the world, has tasted sin and death on the cross, and yet chose to stay in the situation to make propitiation for our sins. It's this gospel motivation that only comforts our hearts but also pushes us to be compassionate to those around us. And so the responsibility of social justice and mercy ministry, we can't push it to other organizations. So the question is, who's supposed to be doing it? Is it the work of the church or the work of Christians? And the Bible's quite clear that it's the work of both. Anything less would be not understanding the full gospel. We are changed and freed by the gospel to experience God's compassion so that we can also be compassionate towards others. And so what that means for us here at Red Door Church is we want to love and care for the oppressed and the marginalized, and we want to do it intentionally. And so a couple of ways that we want to do it here at the church, one is financially. 
we definitely want to steward the church's finances in such a way that we can love and alleviate some of the pain of the world around us. But it also means that we want to structure the church in such a way that we're not too busy with events and too busy with seminars and too busy with discipleship classes that we're not able or that we don't have capacity to actually love and serve the world around us. Again, those things are good and right, but we don't want to miss it. We want to make sure that our missional communities are engaged with the people around it. But it also means not just engaging the oppressed out there, but even within the church, creating the space to have intentional conversations. It means effectively that we want Red Door Church to be a safe space where we can create difficult conversations about race, gender-based violence, inequality, even restitution. I think we're so scared of disagreeing with one another that we often close the door to having these conversations. Even when we don't agree and understand one another's position, compassion means that there is a willingness to at least enter into these spaces to try and hear and try and feel the pain that my brother and sister is experiencing. This is what we want to do as a church, and yet... Although the church and the church structures plays an important role to create platform for this, to help us to enable this, ultimately it is up to every single believer to be moved by compassionate hearts to serve the city around them. I can't do this by myself. In fact, the bulk of my job is actually making sure that we create a space so that this can happen by each one of us. And before we go and we want to be compassionate to the city, I know from personal experience that there's certain compassionate barriers that sometimes hamper us from doing this, from living this out. And so I'm going to close off with this. There's three things that I think we need to address that sometimes block our hearts from being compassionate to others. The first one is almost the one that the sermon is about. It's what we call a gospel block. And so often what happens is we're familiar with Christianity and we get excited about this and we definitely want to go out and serve people, but we're not always moved by the gospel. This is point number one and this is going to be the bedrock for everything going forward. What we need are hearts that are moved by the gospel. And so if you don't yet feel this or if you feel a lack of compassion for the people around us, what we need to do is once again go and realize the compassion that was shown to our hearts. Now, this isn't instantaneous, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is a daily battle trying to believe, in fact, the love that God has shown us. This is daily, again, preaching to your own heart what we have in Christ. The second challenge for us to be compassionate to the world around us is a heart that hurts. A heart that hurts. All of us have experienced hurt to some degree or another. And what can happen, especially if it's relational hurt or something that really, something big that happened in your life, our hearts become hardened. It's a natural defense mechanism that we do to protect ourselves. The less I feel, the less I can experience hurt and thereby being hurt again. And so we might still be able to be sympathetic, we can feel sorry for people, but to be able to be moved by compassion, we need hearts that are able to experience pain with people. And that means opening up. Past 
hurtful experiences often block this. It often keeps us from really being empathetic and compassionate with the people around us. God wants more for you. God actually wants you to be more human, to feel more, to experience more, having soft hearts. And family, that means dealing with the pain of the past, even when it's really difficult. So there's multiple ways that we can do this. It can be as simple as chatting with someone within your DNA group or within your uh, mission or community. It can be as difficult as having deep psychological wounds that you actually need a professional to guide you through this. And no matter what level the discussion is, the medicine is always the same. Whoever that person is that will guide you through the discussion, the medicine they will offer you is the gospel again. They will help you chat through these things, but once again show you that God wasn't absent in that situation, that God wasn't vengeful in that situation, but he actually still loves you and cares deeply for you. And it's only once our hearts again deal with that pain and our hearts get softened that we're able to truly love and have compassion on the people around us. It's crazy. God pushes us to show compassion to others. And in the process, that actually reveals our own hurt. And so we think we're going out there to help other people and God uses that process to help us. Which brings us to the third point. One of the challenges that I think that we face in being effectively compassionate to the world around us is compassion fatigue. It is when we are faced with the enormity of a situation or the length of time that it's needed to engage a situation that it simply overwhelms us. So much so that you experience burnout and you've got to step away. And we've got a lot of that in South Africa. If we think about the problems that we're facing, the inequality, the economic institutions, it can be so overwhelming that we simply just pull out and we don't engage at all. And this is quite common. And as harsh as it may sound, one of the reasons we experience burnout, one of the reasons why we have compassion fatigue is because we suffer from a Messiah complex where I think I'm going to solve this. I'm going to go into this situation and I'm going to make it better. I'm the only one that can do this. If I just have enough resources and enough time, we would be able to fix this situation. And although this is driven sometimes by good intentions, it actually inhibits our ability to show compassion to the people around us. Because instead of coming alongside people, we view ourselves as the savior. And so it's this top-down approach. I come in and these, I am the savior of the situation. What we desperately need as a church in South Africa is to first again realize that there's only one savior. There's only one Messiah in any and every con- context and that is Jesus. He is saving and he will save. The moment we start believing that more, it kind of releases us from having to fix every situation, having that the outcome is that everything is fixed and right where we don't get totally destroyed when things don't work out. And understanding this will help us engage more with people and don't just see them as projects or things that need to be fixed and systems that need to be rectified, even though we should care about it. 
when we see Jesus as the Savior, we don't overextend ourselves and burn out. We can actually ask for help. We can actually work together because I'm not the one who has to solve these things. It changes the way that we actually see people in need. This is one of the other challenges for people in the church. We somehow treat people of a different economic or social stance different from us, thinking that we are the ones that should go and fix them. Once we understand the gospel, we understand that all people are the same. Circumstances may be different, but people are the same and our need is the same. All of us need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And suddenly what it does we still want to intervene. We still want to see the city changed. We want to see structures changed. We want to see difficult conversations had, but we start seeing people for who they are. And we're able to listen better to their stories and go into the situations. Ultimately, we become more human. We become more who God intended us to be as he created us before the fall. And so family, may that be all the more true for Red Door, even as we know in our identity that we are on mission and that we live as a community, that we would be people who are characterized by the heart of God. And that means showing compassion to one another, but especially where we're at in the city of Pretoria. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this tight-knit family that you've brought together around your word. It isn't because what we've done or what, how cool we've um, made the slogans of the church or the catchphrases or even the three distinctives, everything is built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray for that. We pray that almost what we have here this morning would continue, that we would be a church not driven necessarily by the Sunday experience or the flashiness of a Sunday morning, but rather people who are changed by the heart of God. And Father, we are so encouraged because we actually see that happening. We are seeing people love and invite those that they haven't been mingling before or haven't known before. We're seeing people being sacrificial of their time and their money and their resources. And we're seeing people not only wanting to be involved from a distance, but people actually becoming part of other people's lives. And even more than that, inviting them into their lives. And so Father, we want to Thank you. Even as we pray for more of this, we want to praise you and thank you because we know that this is only a work of the Spirit. This could only happen as the gospel changes us. And that excites us as we know we don't want to deceive ourselves, but we want to be true followers of Christ with a religion that is pure and undefiled before God. Amen.